You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So if you are anything like me, um, you either raised in a non-Christian household or raised in a, a Christian household with questionable doctrine, uh, then you were probably taught growing up either exp- expressly or uh, kind of inconspicuously that we come into this world clean. That at worst, maybe you come into this world as a blank canvas to either develop into good or evil, or at best that you come into this world pure and undefiled and innocent, and then over time, uh, the, the influence of the world kind of gets a grip on you and uh, steals from you your innocence. I mean, we, we see this in some of the common expressions that we say, right? Like we want to preserve the innocence of our children, like we want to preserve their purity as if that's their standard state, right? And so it's something out there, something around us, the corrupted world that gets into us, and sometime after we're born, it has its influence on us, and we join with the rest of the world in its corrupted state. And in that, what I would say is that we are rejecting or, or misunderstanding or have an underdeveloped theology of what's called original sin, the inherited sin state that we get from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden where the Lord placed curses over the human race over mankind, over the fallen nature of our very race, our very species, that human beings were created to perfectly glorify and emulate God, and in rejecting Him in the garden, we were cast into a sin state. We have a sin nature, okay? And this nature governs everything that we do, so that when you sin, you are doing what is natural to you. It's not that you are corrupted by the world, it's that you are the world, You are the world, right? The sin is corrupted because of you. You're not corrupted because of it. You understand? Well, geez, Adam, good intro, right? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you leaning in with this heavy, right? Like, why are you coming in so hot? Well, the reason why I'm coming in hot with this kind of heavy, big doctrine at the beginning is because if we don't kind of get our eyes on our starting position, have a really good, solid foundation, which we're supposed to have having walked through 12 chapters of the book of John, if we don't have a real good, solid foundation and understanding of our, of our starting position, then what we're going to read this morning is not going to land as solidly as I want it to land. Ultimately, what I want is for the words of Jesus to land solidly on you this morning, but in order for it to be as wonderful as it is, in order for it to hit as hard as it's meant to hit, we, are, we have to understand what had to happen. You and I needed salvation. We were broken and corrupted in our very nature, in our very state, okay? So that's kind of my opening. Now, why, now why do I do all that? Well, because what we're going to read this morning begins with, and Jesus cried out, and Jesus cried out, and when I was reading it, now I have the luxury that maybe you guys don't have, given that it's my job to preach this stuff, right? That I'm like in this book all week long, all day long, just reading John, reading John. I've read the whole book of John so many times since we've started uh, preaching through this book, because we're going to go left to right through, and I want to really know it, right? But when I read, and Jesus cried out, my first instinct was to say, to who? Who? Because if you're not reading this book one Sunday at a time, but you're reading it over and over, then you would remember that two weeks ago, and and I kind of recapped it a little bit last week, that it says 
in verse 36 and 37 that when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so we saw this kind of progression of events over the last several weeks where we see Jesus making an appeal, this kind of last appeal to the people in Jerusalem where he says, I am the light and come to me while I'm still among you. And he's calling on his doubters and his rejectors to repent and to come to him while I'm still here. Like, and then it says that he departed from them. And then last week I preached this kind of aside that John writes where he gives an explanation for the unbelief of the people. But this aside that John wrote that I read to you guys last week where he drew from, from the prophet Isaiah in order to try to explain why the earthly ministry of Jesus was met with so much rejection and failure. Well, Jesus wasn't there for any of that. This is Jesus departed, and while he's departed, John pauses and says, and let me explain why he was rejected like this. And then we open this week, and Jesus cried out, to who? The simple answer is the more boring but accurate one, which is that since John knows what he cried out, John was probably there. The disciples were probably there. But he doesn't give us any context around who was there, who he was saying it to, why he was saying it, when he was saying it. It's probable since next week we're going to see this move into the upper room and we're going to see Jesus have a feast with his closest friends, that this is possibly said to them on the way to the feast or maybe said in the upper room, but it's, we don't know. He chooses to give us no context about who he was saying this to and why he was saying it. And I want to speculate as one of your shepherds that the reason why our author puts this declaration from Jesus here without context is because this passage is in no way context-specific or context-dependent. These words are not for these specific people on this specific day for this specific reason. These words are for all people at all times, and so it's for you. He put it right here for you. These are, in fact, the very last words of Jesus Christ in his public ministry. I've been saying that for like several weeks, but it's one interaction, right? I've just taken a long time to preach it. These are the very last, and truly the last, like done, done. These are the last words of Jesus Christ in his public ministry. After this, he's withdrawn with his friends, and after that, he's going to die on a cross, and after that, he's going to resurrect, and after that, he's going to ascend. But his earthly life and ministry as the man-God, walking around, doing signs, teaching, rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and all all that we've seen, all of that's done now. He has withdrawn. And this crying out is the last of it the last documented words of John regarding the public ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ. So it comes as no surprise to me, it should come as no surprise to you, that what we're going to encounter in this declaration of Jesus at the end of his public ministry is a some recap of everything he's been saying. So my hope as we go through it today is that you guys will take this and you will have at your, at your disposal here, if, if you're somebody who struggles to share the gospel, 
to struggle, who struggles to share the content of the teachings of Jesus, who struggles to summarize the message of Jesus Christ in his life on earth, who struggles to share the truth about Jesus with a friend, who struggles to believe the totality of the teaching of Jesus in your own life. He found it sufficient to summarize it in essentially four or five statements here, one paragraph. This would be an incredible place for you to turn to get a big picture grasp of the total teaching of Jesus' entire public life and ministry. So if that's not enough to get you excited for what he has to say, I don't know what will. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and said, number one, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. What is the number one loudest, most repeated teaching of Jesus Christ in his public life and ministry? Say it with me. I and the Father are one. So many times has he said this in his ministry that it's not surprising to me at all that it would be the first thing that he says in the last public paragraph of his life. I and the Father are one. I am God. I am am God. The first central message, if you were to share the Christ with anyone in your life, if you were to believe onto him in your own life, would be to proclaim and to profess with your lips that Jesus Christ is himself one with the Father, that he is God. We read it in John chapter 8 verse 58 when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am, the very name that God gave to Moses. In John 10, chapter, or verse 30, we read, I and the Father are one. He says it again and again. In the very beginning, the introduction to John, I've, I've quoted this for you guys several times. You see, in the beginning, it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In John 14, when we flip ahead, I've got it on my page here, Philip, in his doubting, is going to say to the Lord, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In Colossians chapter 15, chapter 1, verse 15, I marked it for you. Maybe. Paul writing here, he says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Same letter, chapter 2, verse 9. We read that for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I could keep going. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, kind of, it's kind of like close your eyes, flip the page, point, and you are going to read in some form or fashion a declaration of the majesty of Jesus Christ, some declaration of his unity with the Father, some declaration of his godhood. And some of you guys I know are like, man, Adam, you come up here and it feels like every week you're up here telling me Jesus is God. I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We get it. Enough with the Christianity 101. I mean, we're Christians. It's in the name. But I know you don't believe it with your whole being because I know I don't believe it with my whole being. And here's the proof. There's a lot of proof. Here's the big one that I see in GC. We start believing that we need to add to the work of Christ in order to be made okay with God. We start believing that we need to add to the work of Christ, who is God, in order to make ourselves okay with God. And the root unbelief there is that Jesus isn't God. Otherwise, Jesus is not satisfied with the work that God has done to make people right with God. God has found something deficient in what he has done to save you. And he needs you to help him out with what he's done. It's, I was going to say stupid. I've been slinging insults up here like for weeks though. I'm going to try not to. Try not to. It's, um, Silly. We, when we pray or when we, when we close our eyes and we imagine the Christ, when we imagine the Son, we bring different attributes to mind than when we close our eyes and we imagine the Father, don't we? Think about it. Are they one? Really? in your faith? Do you believe in a Jesus Christ who is himself God? Do you attain your understanding of the Father by beholding the Son? Because it's him who said, not me, it's him who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Is your understanding of God formed by your beholding of the Son? This is no small doctrine, and it cannot be over-repeated. It's at the heart of everything else that we believe, that Jesus is himself God. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Here we go with the light thing again. We've been talking about this theme of Jesus being the light almost every week for 12 chapters. Jesus really likes to talk about this. Why? There are some things that we learn here that are important, kind of going back to my 
introduction just a little bit. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not what? Remain in darkness. Key word in this passage for me is remain. I want you to focus on it, to remain in darkness. Jesus doesn't appear and shine light, and there's a devil with pointy horns over here compelling you into darkness, and you're in this neutral third ground in between the two, having to choose between light and darkness. It's a false narrative. This is not the truth. Until the light shines on the hearts of man, you remain in darkness. It's your starting position. It's your default position. You are in darkness. You are dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, but you've been made alive, joined with Christ in his resurrection. But it's his light that changed that for you, that pierced the darkness, that you would not remain in it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your starting position, church, was that of darkness, and you were powerless to take yourself out of darkness. There's nothing that you could do. The light had to shine into the darkness, and Jesus said that he came into the world as light so that whoever believes would not remain in darkness. But here's the beauty of the light of the sun shining into the hearts of men to gather a remnant, to form a church, to ransom a people for himself. What happens when you turn out a light? Well, it goes dark again, doesn't it? Just like the default position is darkness, and you need to do something in order to illuminate it. If you stop doing that thing, flick the switch, it returns to darkness. Jesus did not shine his light into the hearts of the church in order to temporarily illuminate things for you, that you could get a sense for how things are and then become your own light after the fact, to try to emulate his light going forward, to try to keep the light on for yourself. You remove the Christ, you remove the light, you return to darkness. This is an eternal light. This is a light that shines steady and unquenchable fire of glory that captivates the church. And hell and the hands of men have done and continue to do anything that they can to try to put out this light such that we can even drive stakes into his wrists and ankles. We can take the breath out of his lungs. We can bloody him and pin him upon a cross and we can mock him. And this only serves to burn the light even brighter for the church. The grave could not keep him. Nothing could put out this light. He came into the world as light so that whoever believes would not remain in darkness. Your security, church, your ability to stay in the light is not dependent on your ability to keep the light on. He is the unquenchable fire who burns for you. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, this is interesting. 
Because Jesus has had a lot to say about judgment in the book of John, hasn't he? And here he says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. We would be expecting him to say, If anyone hears my words and does keep them, I do not judge them, wouldn't we? Right? Just me? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. You see, this is the good news. We've moved from one, Jesus is God, two, he has come as light to take men from darkness and into light, three, he has not come into the world to judge it, but to save it. Well, if he's not going to judge the ones who hear his words and do not keep them, who exactly was being judged? Don't forget when he spoke these words. We're like less than a week before he's going to be pinned upon a cross with sin upon his shoulders. The full judgment and wrath of God is about to be poured out on the Son. Who exactly is being judged here if Jesus didn't come to judge the ones who would hear his words and not keep them? You, you were the ones who were judged. I was the one who was judged. At Calvary, the wrath of God was not poured out on the unbelievers. At Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out on the church. All of the sins of the church, those who did believe, had their sins, had their sin nature, had their very spirit pinned upon Christ and taken into the grave with him that they might take up new life again. Who was judged at Calvary? The sins of the church. The sins of the church. What does this mean, guys? There, is, there are way better passages for me to preach this idea to you guys. I'm going to try to show some restraint. I know this is big. You can come to my GC if I really rattle you. But we have to think this through. I'm not speaking figuratively, neither was Paul writing figuratively, when he talked about joining Christ in his death. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the seed that falls into the earth and dies and bears much fruit if we join him in the likeness of his death. I'm not speaking figuratively. When Jesus died on the cross, he actually brought the church with him. He took, not to, he, like, let's try to picture this. I'm going to use a word picture for you, okay? He did not look upon Joseph, remove his sin from him, and take that and leave him behind blank canvas, and then take just his sin to the cross that he might have like a fresh chance. He took Joseph to the cross with him. This is a hard doctrine, and it's primarily because of our underdeveloped theology about bodies and spirits, which is why I've got to hold my tongue. I'll just preach a totally separate sermon here, but here's the idea. One day you're going to die, and what is going to happen with your body? You're going to be cremated, you're going to be buried in the ground, it's going to rot away into dust, right? Your body will be gone. And while your body will be gone, just like Jesus said to the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise, somehow you, whatever you means, because your body's gone, will be with Jesus 
without your body. Like, well, I'm going to get my new body. Well, not right away. Get another sermon. (laughs) But you will get your glorified body at the resurrection of the church, at the second coming of Christ, when he brings heaven to earth, when he institutes the new heaven and the new earth and restores all things, we will receive our glorified bodies. And until that day, we are not fully receiving the promises that have been made to us. We are in perfect harmony with Jesus and perfect delight, and yet there is the part of us still that is awaiting him to come into his kingdom in order that we would take up our glorified bodies. Because as humans, you were made both body and spirit. You need both to have your fulfillment. It's what you were made for. It's a word picture. Think about it in the garden. First he fashioned Adam from the dust, and then what did he do? God breathed the very breath of life into his nostrils, and he became man. Your humanity is the coming together of your fashioning and your forming and the spirit of God that indwells you. You are both body and spirit, and both must die, and both must rise again. They must not both happen at the same time. Your spiritual death happened at Calvary. Your spirit was removed. Judgment was poured out upon the corrupted sin nature that was yours. And you were made a new creation. A a right spirit was restored within you. The Holy Spirit communing with your spirit, testifying that you are now a child of God. A heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. We are talking about the actual death of the sinful, corrupted spirit of man replaced with the new creation, the resurrected spirit, so that when you die, your bodily death, your body is just catching up to what's already happened to your soul. It is joining your soul in its actual death and awaiting its resurrection. Otherwise, what's so great about heaven? Frankly, Where was I going with that? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Where I was going with that is that the death that occurred at Calvary, the judgment that was poured out upon sin, was for you. It was for you. Who's it not for? Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So what we're talking about is two comings. This is one of the passages that gives us clarity on the nature of the coming of the Messiah. The Christ, Jesus, he came the first time as the suffering Messiah to create the pathway to salvation, to give up his life as the atoning sacrificial lamb and take it up again that the church might be ransomed from the consequences of sin, from the penalty of sin and death. This was the first coming. He came as the lamb. When he comes back, he comes as the lion. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. 
The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. One of the reasons why we celebrate that our judgment has already happened is because the judgment that comes next is way scarier. When the wrath and the judgment of God the Father was poured out on you, you were pinned to the Savior, and the Savior took up his life again and brought you with him. You received resurrection. On the last day, those who receive the judgment of God will not be pinned to the Savior. Their sin will be pinned to their shoulders. They will make an answer for their sin without the mediator. And Jesus had a whole lot to say about that. We don't like preaching it, but in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says that hell is a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, 43, he says that it's a place of unquenchable fire. In 9, 48, he says it's where the worm doesn't die. In Matthew 13, 42, he says it's a place with much weeping and gnashing of teeth and anguish and regret. In Luke 16, 19, it says it's a place from which there is no return, not even to warn your loved ones. In Matthew chapter 25, he calls it the place of outer darkness, where your surroundings match your insides. In Matthew chapter 10, he calls it Gehana, which is the name of a trash dump that is outside of Jerusalem where they would burn rubbish and where maggots abounded. Jesus had a whole lot to say about what awaits those who face judgment without his mediation. And this is a necessary piece to the gospel story. You want to say, oh, gosh, how do I share this? How do I believe this? Jesus is God, and God is holy. Jesus is light that pierces the darkness. Jesus is patient and enduring, steadfast in his love, waiting until the last day to pour out his judgment upon his rejectors. And until that day, that means mercy's door is still open, that he is adding in number to the church, those who he is ransoming, those who he is taking out of darkness and into light. People are still being saved. If Jesus isn't back yet, then the work's not done yet. If Jesus isn't back yet, then people are still being taken from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That's still happening. Thank God that the doors weren't closed before your day. But the day will come. But regarding eternal life, John said, Jesus said in John 10, 27, you guys remember, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. This is what he means when he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, verse 49, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Guys, the words of Jesus documented in his earthly life and ministry, his words are eternal life. 
He spoke what the Father commanded him. He and the Father being one, his message is life. The gospel is life. And he said of his sheep, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. So just as Jesus spoke often and in great detail about hell, he spoke often and in great detail about the kingdom, about eternal life. In John 14, just a couple of chapters, verse 1, Jesus, is, Jesus says, let, your heart, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Eternal life is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Actual Jesus is actually God, and he actually died for your actual sins. And he actually rose for your actual life, that you would dwell with him in actual heaven for actual eternity. And actual people are actually dying with their actual sin upon their actual selves. And the actual judgment of actual Jesus will actually fall upon them. And they will make payment for their actual sin for an actual eternity and an actual hell. I mean, do we believe it? I mean, what joy on the one hand that you, that I, was spared by the grace of God alone from making an account for our sin. And what a horrifying prospect for those who spit him out, who love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, who prefer their sin, who reject the light. In Revelation 21, we read about what awaits those who are found in him as compared to what awaits those who are not. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Amen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you believe it? Yes. 
and he was seated on the throne. And he said, behold, I am making all things new. Do you believe it? Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Do you believe it? Verse 22, same chapter. I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." This light that pierces the darkness, this light that Jesus said came into the world as light, this light will be the light by which we walk in heaven in eternity with him. We will have no need of moon or sun because his glory will be our light. He says that the glory of the nations will come and bow at his feet. He's still saving from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is gathering his church from the corners of the earth. He is saving a dead and dying people. And the way that he has seen fit to do it, your perfect, holy God who knows all has seen fit to do it, is through the church. That the church would spread the gospel to the corners of the earth, starting with your home, starting with your spouse, starting with your kids, starting with your neighbor, starting with your coworker, And then some of you guys are going to get on a plane and you're going to fly to Nepal. You're going to spread it there. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, we're not playing house here, you know. This is no trifling thing. This is no small thing. We're talking about eternal matters. It is fitting that these would be the parting words of Jesus in his public ministry. And so as you go and you respond to him in obedience to the Great Commission to spread this gospel, this light, this message of salvation. I encourage you to turn to our verses here today. John chapter 12, verse 44, on down through the end. What do you need to know to share the gospel? Jesus is God, and his light overcomes darkness. And his judgment has not poured out, been poured out yet on unbelievers. Mercy's door is still open. It's not too late to repent and turn to him. See, the grace of him 
to continue his appeal. But there is an actual day of judgment coming. And it will be his word that separates the goats from the sheep. And all that will matter on that day is when the Father looks at you in the hour of his judgment, will you have the record of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection read over you? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been covered in the blood of the Lamb. Or will you have the record of your life and deeds read over you and be found wanting before a holy God? Hard things to say, and yet they were life to you. They were life to me, and they are life to a great multitude that our Father knows. We ought to be so encouraged. You know, I went to a church once when I was maybe 10 years old. This fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. I didn't hear a lot of hell preached outside of that church, to tell you the truth, but that church was like hell was the only thing there was in the Bible. He'd go on and on and on, and he would say that in heaven, this is bad theology, he'd say in heaven we will all have blood on our hands for the people we were supposed to serve or give the gospel to, but we didn't. It's not true. Like, I'm afraid you're going like, to go pick up your kid and then be like, oh, Adam said, no. But I heard that as a child and felt a tremendous responsibility, right? Like, it's on me. And that's why it's so important that we read left to right through the whole gospel account. It's why we're taking it slow. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through him. No one can know him except through him. But that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And that if the Father gives you to him, you will come to him. This isn't just a declaration of what the mechanics look like to come to salvation. It is an assurance that Jesus will ransom his church. It's as sure as the sun will rise. You've just been invited to participate in what he's going to do. He will save. He will ransom. Will you obey? Will you proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth? Will you love your neighbor more than you love your comfort? Will you love your God more than you love your comfort? Will you be the church? Because church, hear me. I don't ever want to be heavy-handed up here, but hear me anyway. You're only here instead of there. You're only here instead of with him. Because the work's not done. Because he's still saving. Because he's not closed the book of life. Because he's not brought his judging sword upon the nations. Because he is still patiently enduring and ransoming his church. And he said he was going to do it through his body. So if we're not doing that, like, what are we doing? I just want to admonish you into boldness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Let us pray for that boldness together now.